You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. President Trump declares a state of emergency over the threat from foreign adversaries and the companies they control. And yes, Huawei, he's looking at you. Dutch intelligence is said to be investigating the possibility of backdoors in telecommunications networks. Concerns about spyware proliferation rise. Cipher stunting is observed in the wild. Heightened security keys are spoofable. Meconning airlines. And misconfigurations expose PII in Russia. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 16, 2019. U.S. President Trump yesterday issued an executive order declaring a national emergency with respect to the threat foreign adversaries pose to U.S. technology infrastructure. Authority to issue the order comes from the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. The executive order opens the way to banning the use of products and services produced by companies effectively under the control of such adversaries. The Secretary of Commerce will take the lead in determining where such threats to national security lie and will do so in consultation with other agencies as appropriate. The Secretary of Commerce is charged with developing rules or regulations to implement the order within 150 days. Commerce has already said it will add Huawei and 70 of its affiliates to an entity list of organizations to be banned under the executive order. Huawei knows that it's the company of interest here. American authorities haven't been at all coy over the past year. And Huawei has responded with a mixture of honey and vinegar. It's innocent, the Guardian reports the company saying, and it will sign agreements to convince skeptical governments that its products represent no threat. Besides, none of you can really afford to do without us. That's the vinegar. The offer to sign undertakings not to engage in espionage on behalf of the Chinese government has been in play for some weeks, and Huawei has negotiated confidence-building inspection and disclosure agreements with other governments. These haven't always proceeded entirely happily. In the U.S., for example, the Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Center in Banbury, the HCSEC, was established to inspect Huawei kit inbound to Britain. GCHQ, which monitors the British end of things, 
said earlier this year that Huawei had been unreliable and slipshod in addressing security issues raised by the HCSEC, and that, moreover, the company's security was simply sloppy from an engineering point of view. Those who bet on form will note T-Mobile's experience with Huawei's willingness to adhere to agreements that would protect IP. That experience was not a good one. As we learned two weeks ago at the Global Cyber Innovation Summit, Huawei not only continued to steal IP after signing agreements not to do so, but the company even incentivized employees to snoop on partners' trade secrets. Huawei's case also isn't helped by reports that the Netherlands General Intelligence and Security Service is investigating what it believes may be an espionage backdoor the company insinuated into Dutch commercial telecommunications networks. The intelligence agency isn't speaking publicly, but the Dutch news outlet Volkskrant says it has sources close to the inquiry who've confirmed that an investigation is ongoing. The General Intelligence and Security Service has expressed skepticism of Huawei in the past. Why are Chinese firms targets? There are three other big adversaries the U.S. has, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. But China is a major trading partner, and China makes things people actually want to buy. Russia and Iran don't offer much apart from oil, the value of which increasing U.S. production has undercut. And North Korea, of course, offers nothing much at all. The Telegraph reports that NSO Group's ownership says it will investigate how Pegasus became the payload in a WhatsApp exploit and promises transparency and more due diligence with respect to its customers. Novel Pina Capital, the British private equity fund that has a significant stake in NSO Group, says it's determined to ensure that NSO products like Pegasus aren't abused. DNS, the domain name system, is one of the foundational underpinnings of the Internet, translating domain names to IP addresses so users can reach online resources thereafter. But DNS isn't immune to attack, and lately it's been in the crosshairs of a number of bad actors. Chris Beavers is CEO at NS1, a provider of managed and private DNS services. The biggest threats are hijacking and poisoning attacks that are about taking over your domain, or DDoS attacks that are about disabling your domain and keeping your application offline. Few essential best practices that have emerged around DDoS in particular. First of all, don't don't power your own internet-facing DNS. Right, it it now requires if you want to be defended against these large-scale DDoS attacks, a huge investment in network infrastructure, DDoS mitigation capability, and so on. And there are companies in the managed DNS space in particular that are making gigantic investments in their network infrastructure and mitigation technologies and DNS software to defend against the scale and complexity of attacks that we're seeing today. So work with them because, because they are making these investments on, on your behalf. Another important thing around DDoS is redundancy. Um, four or five years ago, what we saw is most domains on the internet were what we would call singly homed. They lived on a single vendor's set of DNS name servers. The problem with that is if the vendor comes under a major attack or has some other kind of network issue, it it takes your domain offline. The best practice that emerged was work with multiple vendors or multiple DNS networks at any one time to service your domain in an active, active fashion so that if one of them comes under some big attack, the other one picks up the slack. The DNS protocol is designed for this purpose or, or to work seamlessly in this way. And the technology to do this has, has improved pretty dramatically in the past couple of years since the big, well-known attacks that have happened. There are vendors in the market today 
that can deploy multiple physically independent networks for you to, to introduce redundancy and protect against DDoS attack. Um, another basic best practice that has emerged is sign your domains, use DNSSEC. DNSSEC is an extension of the protocol, as we spoke about, that's been around for more than a decade now. But much like uh, you know, IPv6, uh, it's taken a long time for it to gain adoption. The incentivization hasn't always been there. And in particular, it's been hard to implement in the past. Now, we're seeing these active threats, like those identified by Vitalis Group at Cisco or by FireEye and CISA at Department of Homeland Security so far in 2019. These threats are real. They're happening. Um, that should provide some incentivization to protect your domains. It's, it's a brand motivation, right? If your domain is hijacked and your customer's data is stolen, these days it's on you because the technology is there to, to protect your domain. Um, and, and in particular, you will find multiple vendors in the managed DNS ecosystem today that make DNSSEC as easy as pushing a button. So go push the button. It's really important now. And then the, the final sort of area that I encourage everyone I'm speaking with to go audit and, and investigate is access controls and management of their domains. Um, this is how some of these hijacking attacks are really happening today. It's weak passwords. It's lack of two-factor uh, authentication on access to DNS management systems or registrars. And the other really important piece of this is, you know, not just access controls, but monitoring changes that are happening in your domains. Um, is somebody changing really important DNS records like your mail server records or the NS records that point uh, your domain at particular name servers or uh, the signing keys if you've implemented DNSSEC. And modern managed DNS vendors in particular provide APIs or integrations with your SIM um, so that you can get updates instantly when changes are happening to those important DNS records in your domain and drive alerts off of those in your SOC um, or with your security team. So those are the three basic things. Redundancy for DDoS, sign your domains with DNSSEC, and best practice control plane security and monitoring. That's Chris Beavers from NS1. Researchers at security firm Proofpoint have released a study of TA-542, which they call a prolific threat actor. TA-542's signature project is Emotet, which has gone through four versions. Emotet emerged in May 2014 as a banking trojan. Since then, it's evolved. Now, in 2019, Emotet has become a system for delivering other malicious payloads. How is it distributed? It will surprise no one to hear that it spreads by social engineering. Akamai has observed an increase in cipher stunting, a method by which attackers finagle their encryption traffic in order to avoid detection. The security firm says it's seen that attackers, quote, on a scale never seen before, end quote, are using automatically varied permutations of the initial handshake request, the client hello packet, in order to obscure their trail, making it appear that the requests are coming from a large number of distinct systems. This tends to defeat attempts to fingerprint such communications, and fingerprinting has been a useful way of recognizing malicious traffic. Researchers at Northeastern University point out the possibility that hostile actors could use bogus signals to divert commercial aircraft. Such deception is an old possibility. It's traditionally called meconning, and it goes back to the earliest days of radio-aided aerial navigation. But the increased dependence of aircraft on such navigational systems does seem to raise the stakes. Google has warned that its Titan Bluetooth security keys, widely used for two-factor authentication, 
can be hijacked by attackers within Wi-Fi range. Mountain View is offering replacement hardware, said to be proof against this particular hack. A joint EU-US investigation has resulted in the indictment of 11 hackers in connection with the use of the Gaznim banking trojan. The gang was widely distributed, but Eastern European, five in Russia, two in Ukraine, two in Georgia, and one each in Bulgaria and Moldova. Their U.S. indictment was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Five are in custody, and two of them will face trial in Georgia. Six are on the run. Call it Rasconfigurazia. Why not? It's misconfigure in Russian. And that's what seems to have happened to some official Russian databases recently. The Russian NGO Informational Culture says it's discovered the personal data of some two and a quarter million Russian citizens knocking around on the Internet. The people affected range from the ordinary Ivans and Ivankas up to some pretty high-level bigwigs, and their stuff is out there where any Joe Lunchbucket or Janie Sixpack can scoop it up. Radskom Nadzor, the government's information watchdog, is doing a little whistling in the dark, saying that, well, all that info was never meant to be private in the first place, and maybe they're right. But there's really nothing to be ashamed of. The researchers blame inconsistency with respect to document management, poorly skilled IT personnel, and failure to implement data loss prevention for the exposures. And that could happen to anyone. It's happened to a lot of people. Just ask the U.S. government, which could show you a pretty cage full of similar issues at the Office of Personnel Management back in the day. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Emily Wilson. She is the VP of Research at Terbium Labs. Emily, uh, great to have you back. Um, you know, we had this story come by recently from the folks over at Cisco's Talos unit about work they had done 
exposing uh, groups on Facebook that were doing shady stuff out in the open. Um, and and I, when I saw this story, I thought, well, I have to talk to Emily about this because in my mind, these are the sorts of things that I would expect to be happening on the dark web. But uh, I was surprised to to see them out there in the open like this. What's your take? When I first started doing dark web work, I was stunned to see how blatantly and how openly some of these criminal markets and some of these criminal groups operate. You know, we have people who are leaking stolen data via Twitter. Uh, we have people who are operating crime groups on Facebook. You know, even these these carding markets we've talked about before, these specialized markets where people are selling stolen payment cards. I've seen these operating on dot coms and dot orgs. I, I think hiding in plain sight is is generous. These people are operating very blatantly, which speaks to the lack of consequences in many cases. Hmm. Yeah, one of the points that uh, they they made in their research here was that, uh, in particular, these Facebook groups were going after the less sophisticated users. They, they were selling tools that were easy to use. Fraudsters are in business to make money. Cyber criminals are in business, ultimately, one way or another, to make money. And so you have to ask yourself, uh, where can I pick up market share? Where can I go and find new customers for my business? Where are my customers living and working and breathing? If we take away all of the the nuance and the spookiness that we tend to hear around some of these criminal groups and remember that they are people just like us, they are us, operating businesses with the intention of getting as much profit as they can while they can, then this makes sense. You're going to go where the people are. You're going to get all of the the younger people on Facebook who are looking to make money and, and, and turn a profit quickly and maybe don't care too much if, you know, if it's unscrupulous. You know, one of the fascinating things I, I saw in their research here was that uh, the way that the algorithms work on Facebook in terms of recommending things, uh, you could imagine a teenager going to look for you know, cheats on Fortnite and uh, the, the algorithm gets spun up and says, hey, we see you're interested in cheats on Fortnite. How do you feel about stolen credit cards? It's exactly like that. Um, you know, that that's a hypothetical, but I think that's a very representative hypothetical. Like that's, that's, that's the ease of access we're talking about here. You know, there's a, certainly a variety of broader conversations we could be having about the issues with algorithms, but the use of social media as a marketing tactic for criminal groups or extremist groups, we've seen this play out time and again. You know, it's worked for neo-Nazis and white supremacists. It's worked for ISIS. Of course, it's going to work for cybercrime. Well, I mean, to their credit, uh, the folks at Facebook were very responsive when uh, Cisco's Talos Group reached out to them and shut down many of these uh, sites. But uh, I guess we fall into that mode where it just becomes a, a game of whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole is definitely what I would call it. Or, you know, I, I think I've said before, cutting off the head of a hydra and you have eight mm. more that pop up. Mm -hmm. uh, shutting down these groups is a great first step. It doesn't mean that eight more groups won't open up or that these users or these groups that got shut down won't just start over again under new names. Right. You know, it's constantly a moving target. And we know that resource allocation is one of the, uh, the more difficult challenges that these networks face. What do you go after first? Um, and in most cases, cybercrime and certainly fraud are not going to be at the top of the list. Hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose it's a good thing, though. Every little bit of friction that you can add here uh, could be helpful. 
every little bit of friction and I would say every little bit of publicity. It's a double-edged sword because you don't want to call attention to people who are then going to say, oh, well, that's what I'll do this summer. I'll just go on Facebook and find some fraud rings or some cybercrime rings, hmm. and that's how I'll make my money. I won't get a regular summer job. You know, you don't want to market it or make it look good, but you also want to draw attention to the pervasiveness of the issue and the widespread of the issue and the ease of access uh, of this information in hopes that other organizations, whether we're talking about law enforcement or government or or what have you, are going to say, okay, here's an easy way we can go after some of these groups and shut them down. Here are some, some things we can tie back into the work that we're already doing to lessen this issue. You want to let people know how bad it is so people can help and hopefully not recruit too many new criminals in the meantime. Hmm. All right. Well, Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. 
SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 